Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Hey, season four. Yeah, welcome back. I'm excited. Um, what are we doing for the season? Well, I don't know, but it better be good. Um, as you huh. may know, four is a very unlucky number. Oh, it is? Many Asian countries. Oh, no, you know what? I did know that. Yeah. Kind of ghosty or whatever. Well, I'm glad to be back. Um, I had a good summer um, and I'm excited to do a new season. This time, we're not going to do a book for this year like we did yeah. last year. That's right. Uh, we thought we'd just uh, do random stuff that we thought was interesting and fun. We have our limits yeah, that's when right. it comes to literacy. <laughs> well, okay, so um, we're going to just start. We're going to, for this episode, there's only one thing that really anybody wants to talk about <laughs> over the last 18 months. <laughs> oh, actually, I feel like there's been a lot of things, but one of them has been constant. Yeah, that's right. I remember the f- about a month into lockdown, we had a, a group meeting at work. And uh, my boss's boss was there and he was talking about like his interactions with management and their plans for the shutdown and maybe speculation. And we'd been talking about this for like half hour, 45 minutes. And we came to like a stop and we realized we had other stuff like work related to talk about. It was a brief pause. And I was like, guys, this is all anybody wants to talk about, man. (laughs) (laughs) We're just so worried. (laughs) We don't know how long this is going to last. Yeah. But today we're going to talk about miracles. We're pro-miracle on this show. That's right. I thought it'd be fun to start with um, the uh, Pony Express rabbit nose story from State Conference. Oh, so I missed that Uh story um, because while the missionaries were singing, I ran to the bathroom. Well, our beloved state president talked about some of his ancestors, and one of which was a Pony Express fella. Right. And um, this guy, so this was during that brief two year period where the railroads hadn't been finished yet, but there were still plenty of people out that have moved to the West that needed mail. And so they rode everything by horses and they would do crazy things like ride for hundreds and hundreds of miles, changing horses in like a 24 hour stretch or something like this. And this ancestor of our president, um, kind of ran out of his horse ran out of gas and was they stopped in the cold and they were um kind of he was and hyperthermia started to settle in right and he had fallen asleep and that would have been it for him usually except that a little rabbit jumped up on his uh on his on him and licked his nose <laughs> <laughs> yep woke him right up and uh he uh, got back going and was able to make it make it on into make it on into town and that little rabbit licking his nose um, saved his life. Sounds like it. And um, so the, the, the point that the president was trying to make, which I thought was great, is that uh, not all prayers are answered directly. Some of them are answered indirectly by, like, other people <laughs> yeah. and stuff or, like that or rabbits or rabbits or in, or scientists in the case of our main topic today which is uh, mrna vaccines yeah which you know, are a miracle i just want to state that up front and a lot of i think a lot of the scientists who worked on them might be a bit irritated by that characterization <laughs> <laughs> not all of them are religious <laughs> but i think it is 
I'm nearing the end of a monster article in a January issue of the New Yorker that's like, I don't know, um, 40 pages long or something. Mm -hmm. And it talks about some of the people who literally spent their entire lives working on this and how the tech just started to come together just when it needed just when it needed to. It's absolutely amazing. People worked on these things for decades and they only came together. They finally like started to be to be clinically useful like a year and a half ago. Just right yeah. exactly when they yeah, were they needed. were just going into trials for um, was it a Zika vaccine? Um, no, I no, it was influenza. Oh, it was the flu. Oh, okay, yeah, from what I thought I... it was something more exotic than that. But yeah, they were just just starting to work on a potential vaccine for something else when coronavirus showed up. And by coronavirus, I mean a specific coronavirus. But you knew that, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> SARS COVID, SARS whatever it is, SARS COVID two. And then, okay, so uh, what we thought we'd do today um, is kind of split up the conversation into two parts. One, talking about the history of vaccines in our church, and the other, just talk. I, I, I wanted to take the opportunity to just tell people about the science, about how mRNA vaccines work and why they're so amazing, and the staggering implications that for um for the for humanity in the future yeah and for all the upsetting news of the last few years uh, for instance right now trending on twitter is the Mm -hmm. fact that florida any day now is about to pass um in terms of like how many people have died in COVID, the number is about to become larger than the number of americans who died in the vietnam war Uh Um, so there's plenty of like unpleasant ways to look at this Mm -hmm. Uh, but a theme of our show going back to the beginning is that we believe that the world is getting better. And, um, and I, I don't think it's unfair to characterize both of our opinions, but certainly my opinion is that um, this is, uh, shall we say, divinely intentional. Like, I think the world is supposed to get better. And, as, and, um, and for all the ways the world has demonstrably had a rough year and a half, there's positive things that are going to carry us forward and getting better through hard work and sacrifice. Right. Yeah. And by people being put in the right places and just doing the, doing the the heavy lifting. Right. The miracle for 6 billion people on this planet is the hard work of a few hundred or a few thousand that has made that miracle possible. Yeah. And it's so cool. I can't wait to talk about it. Where do you want to start? I want to start with the Buddha. Okay. Excellent. So the Buddha said, and I'm not claiming to quote him directly because I don't speak the language, but Uh essentially something the Buddha said was if prayer worked the way most people think prayer works, then everyone would be healthy, beautiful, wealthy, and wise. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if just praying for things got you what you wanted, then that'd be a pretty nice set of miracles, but it would be, you know, like what we would, everything would be perfect. And you know what it's obviously, obviously that is not how prayer works. Cause if prayer did work that way, everyone would pray and get everything they wanted and everything would be great. Um, so the, your opening about the rabbit, like things are done indirectly, I think is a really important point we need to keep in mind. Um, the Buddha was right. Prayer doesn't work in this sort of simplistic way that, um, you know, a faithful child might imagine. And it's good to be childlike, but it's also good to recognize that um, for prayers to be answered, people have to do stuff. Okay, excellent. 
That's good. I agree completely. As long as we're talking about people from other religions, I could talk about Cotton Mather next, if you like. Okay, sure. So Cotton Mather was a, a pastor in Boston. I first heard of him in my junior English class in high school. Um, he was the person we read after Jonathan Edwards. And I don't remember anything about him except his name and that he was like Jonathan Edwards, sort of a, a terrifying, um, <laughs> from a terrifying branch of Christianity where God is looking to destroy us. Um, that's all I really remember about what we learned from him. Excellent. But uh, so uh, Cotton Mather had a um, slave. Uh, so although um, I want to, I want to point out real quick that although the um, the story I'm telling is available in numerous sources, I like the way it's told by this fellow Michael Harriet, who is a um, he he's a writer at the Root, and um, I'm taking this from his Twitter feed, and we'll put that. In, We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, hey, hey, Aaron. Hey. Yes, yes. People want to see this show notes. How could they find them? <laughs> well, if you're listening, if you're listening to the show on your phone, they're just um, right there. <laughs> when you go and you look at the podcast on your phone, all of them are right there. Or you can go to faceandhat.com. All the show notes are there too. Yes. All right. Faceandhat.com. How lovely. Um, all right. So anyway, so he gets, I, I don't know how literally to take this, but he gets a gift bag. Um, and inside the gift bag is an enslaved black man named, I believe it's pronounced Onesimus. Um, this is a name I've, a, a fellow, um, for someone who is, you know, living not his best life, enslaved as he is, he's a name that pops up in American history every once in a while. Um, and Cotton Mather did not like, did not like this guy. Um, and so just because uh, he was offered to the church as, as an offering, if you will, um, didn't turn Cotton Mather into some great charitable soul who, who um, loved everyone. Um, I'm confused. Anyway. Oh, oh, am I confusing you? A little bit. So, o- Onesimus was like, uh, he was given to the church as like someone's tithing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's um, weird. Yeah. And Cotton Mather didn't like the dude. So mm-hmm. uh, because he was the pastor, um, he now belonged to Cotton Mather um, mm-hmm. in a legal sense, but uh, it didn't make Cotton Mather care for the guy. Um, well, he didn't Cotton, really like him. Cotton Mather was not LDS or was LDS? Oh, no, this is this is like early 1700s. Oh, like okay. Approximately 1700. Exactly. Yes, this is not a Latter-day Saint fellow. Got it. Um, so Cotton Mather runs this church in Boston and uh, Onesimus was not oh, Onesimus. I think that's how you say it. Um, he was not impressed by Cotton Mather trying to convince him that God was white. Um, he didn't he wasn't impressed when Cotton Mather told him that he was wicked because he was too smart. Um, Onesimus just didn't didn't buy a lot of the racism that Cotton Mather felt he should accept, um, and and this is something I didn't know. And so we'll talk about a little bit about the history of vaccines and inoculations and so forth. Um, smallpox is kind of the first one that we know of. Uh, there's evidence in China of it going back well over a thousand years ago. Um, Onesimus learned about uh, how to prevent smallpox using these methods from his childhood in Africa. It's not clear how long. Um, that was a known process in Africa. It doesn't get to uh, England and Europe until um, not long before Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather never heard of this. And so what Onesima, uh, Onesimus told Cotton Mather is that in Africa, people um, take pus from the sores you get from smallpox and stick it in somebody, stick it in, cut you and put it in, and then you don't die of it. Um, and that sounded crazy but cotton mather even though he didn't believe it he told the pharmacist friends about it and they and they decided well why don't we try it so uh 
so using pus, they inoculated 248 friends and family that they knew. Um, and as you might imagine, um, given the nature of humans, as we have, we will see time and time again in history, uh, people, people, um, went insane when they heard this or like, oh my gosh, the, <laughs> you know, the, uh, he's, you know, Onesimus is, is part of a plot to kill white people mm-hmm. naturally. And, um, that is America's first anti-vax movement, mm-hmm. um, over 300 years ago. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, some of them even like they firebombed Cotton Mather's house. Hmm. Uh, so like it was pretty serious. Then, uh, a few years later, I think it's 15 years, but I'm not entirely clear on the timeline. Um, almost 6,000 people, which is about half of Boston caught smallpox. One out of seven people died. I'm not sure if if that's one out of seven of the total population or one out of seven of the ones who got smallpox, but whether it's one out of seven of the total population, one out of 14 of the total population, that is a lot. But um, of the 248 people who've been inoculated, um, six of them died. Mm. So only about one in 40, which is much better. And that Massachusetts then became the first uh, part of like white America, if we can call it that, like to distinguish it from like the native tribes that were here before them, but like of, of British or French or Spanish, whoever, like the, it was the first inoculation program that Massachusetts instituted, um, which made, and, and it, immediately started to work. Another smallpox epidemic hit, um, less than 3% of the population caught smallpox, which if you know anything about smallpox, you know, that is pretty great. Um, unfortunately, one of the anti-vaxxers, uh, was, um, uh, his younger brother who was, had helped, was helping him in the, in the publication of their anti-vax pamphlets and so forth. Um, he didn't want to get his kids vaccinated because he was embarrassed because, you know, he's like publishing this anti-vax stuff. Anyway, his kids, uh, one of his kids dies from it. Um, and this gentleman will go on to open the first hospital in America. He'll also go on to start the first fire department in America. He'll open the first public library in America. Do you know who we're talking about, Aaron? Oh, are you talking about Franklin? Yes. <laughs> and Franklin. No way. Um, and he re- he regrets not vax or it's not a vaccine. Technically it's an inoculation, but, um, Anyway, he pushes for mandates. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson got vaccinated in Philadelphia, and so he wasn't so much worried about it. Hang on, I have a really great phrase. And this is from another article. This is from Nature, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so in contrast to Europe, where smallpox was an endemic illness of childhood, in the colonies, smallpox occurred in large epidemics with about 20-year periodicity and affected children as well as older susceptible individuals. This became an important issue during the Revolutionary War when the troops of the Continental Army, but not the British forces, were ravaged by smallpox until, tell me if you've heard of this guy before, General George Washington at Valley Forge decided to inoculate all susceptible troops. This act probably saved the war effort. Wow. This is incredible. I didn't know any of this. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know any of this until fairly recently either. And I could I could kind of go on. The, the history of it is fascinating. But uh, the point is that... Oh, oh, can I tell you one more story? Oh, yeah. I really like this story. This is not American history. This like, But you, it's not U.S. history. It's Mexican history. Um, but so inoculations and all this had been discovered. And uh, and in England, Jenner... Is it William Jenner? What's Jenner's first name? Do you know? It doesn't matter. Um, he discovers like if you... If you if you get people sick with cowpox, they won't get smallpox. And I believe it's the cowpox that's in this story. I should I should be double checking it, but people can look it up. It's not that hard to look up. It's called the <laughs> internet. Uh, but anyways, whether it was smallpox inoculation or cowpox inoculation, the point is that they 
collected all these um, orphan boys who needed a better life and said, hey, here's the deal. We're going to get two of you sick with cowpox or smallpox or whatever it was. You're going to go on the boat with us. And when you um, get to the pus stage, we're going to take some of your pus and inoculate two more of you. And then when they get sick enough to have pus, we will um, use their pus to inoculate the next two with the idea that we can cross the entire Atlantic Ocean and get to Mexico and still have, and, and then we can inoculate the population there. Um, and the crossing took a little bit longer than they anticipated. When they got there, there was only one kid who was left and, and he was in the pus stage at that point. And um, from his pus, a nation would be inoculated against smallpox. <laughs> this is bananas. Uh, yeah, it's a crazy story. But, and it, it sounds like, and, and on one hand, it's really unethical. On the other hand, like these kids got a pretty good trade, really. They got a new life and, and they were given money. And um, I mean, it would not work today. I, I, you can, I, I, yeah, prob- probably. Yeah, but when you consider the possibilities, the options they had then, um, it was a pretty good, pretty good solution, really. I mean, it's a little icky, but I, I can't come up with a better solution it's given pre- the it's pretty tools icky. they had at the time. Yeah, no, yeah. it's terrible. But given the tools they had at the time, <laughs> it, it's you could really make a utilitarian argument. It was the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, wow. Yeah. So I haven't got to the church yet. Uh-huh. Uh, as far as I couldn't find anything, I looked through... Um, I looked through a lot of sources. I couldn't find anything about inoculation in church sources until the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the moment it shows up, it's treated as common sense and valuable and important. Um, hey, folks, jumping in from the future. Um, the first presidency recently helped us out here by sharing a pro vaccination letter from the 1900s. Um, it's a great little look into some history and we've put it in the show notes on the church's uh, humanitarian page. They proudly proclaim that every year, well, they don't let me rephrase that because the first sentence is not a proud proclamation. Uh, It says 1.7 million children die from vaccine presentable diseases every year. And then the proud proclamation, the church provides support to international immunization campaigns for measles, diarrhea, and pneumonia between 2003 and 2012. The church supported campaigns that benefited over 100 million children and youth in 36 countries. Around 59,000 local volunteers donated over 750,000 hours to spread awareness of these campaigns. Um, and it's kind of difficult to uh, get very far without through through the humanitarian services without finding something about vaccines. Um, for instance, uh, Latter-day Saint Charities, the humanitarian arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is giving $20 million to UNICEF to help distribute 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines to at-risk populations around the world. It's already reached 121 countries and territories. Obviously, if you follow the news um, internationally, like the vaccine is not everywhere yet. Um, People are still trying to get it, but uh, the church is 100% dedicated to helping distribute what you term a miracle to the world, which I think you could argue is largely what the threefold mission of the church is to distribute miracles, right? Whether that's salvation or vaccination, right? It's I mean, much in the same. All things temporal or spiritual, especially the more modern reinterpretation of that phrase, right? Where the old phrase, you know, perfect the saints, redeem the dead, proclaim the gospel, right? It kind of got rewritten. I don't know how many years ago, and in, essentially included care for the poor. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, 
in this case, that's your, that makes a lot of sense. What about like, um, did you happen to, in your readings, I was wondering what, like in the LDS community, like reactions to things like the polio vaccine and things like that. Um, as far as polio is a really interesting one because I, there, there's less evidence that there was a um, real backlash against polio. And I think the difference is with polio, it really only affected children. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the opposite of early COVID. Um, when, when COVID-19 first showed up, it didn't seem to affect children. And this is, polio was the opposite. It only seemed to affect children. Yeah. And I think that re- caused a different reaction. I mean, I think if um, Delta had been the first variant, we might've reacted a lot differently. Because kids are getting it. Yeah, because kids are getting it. Kids are dying. Um, I think that I read something today that it's the most vaccine or excuse me, it's the most contagious disease known except for measles, the Delta variant. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure how that's measured. I didn't read the article. I just saw the headline, but I thought it was. An, well, um, it's measured using a number called R. Yeah, the R not. Mm-hmm. I do know that. But but um, but I also wonder, like, does that include say smallpox, uh, does it include extinct diseases? I should have read the article, but I mm. didn't know it was going to come up in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many sources for today's episode. It's um, true. Awesome. Well, I re- oh, sorry. I was just uh, going to say, I go remember ahead. when on our first COVID-19 episode, how you talked about how um, all the scientists were working on the same problem and how unique and interesting that was. And that well, gets I, to your- I have a, I have a, a reading for you about that. Oh, okay. Point. Let's have it. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're actually going to be doing several nature articles today. So um, do you know what the big three are? The big three articles? Well, journals? Um, obviously nature and science are two of them. I'm going to go with cell. Cell is the other one. That's right. So we have, um, this will be the second uh, reference to nature article today. This one is called um, the sprint to solve coronavirus protein structures and disarm them with drugs. This was published on the 15th of May, 2020. So, wow, that's so quickly. Yeah, so by Megan Sculaderi, all right? Lying in bed on the night of 10 January, scrolling through news on his smartphone, Andrew Messicar got an alert. He sat up. It was here. The complete genome of a coronavirus causing a cluster of pneumonia-like cases in Wuhan, China, had just been posted online. Okay, so the complete genome. So we're going to come back to what that means later. Okay, but what it essentially it means it's the full DNA sequence or RNA because viruses are RNA sequence of the coronavirus. Yes. Around the world, similar notifications appeared on the devices of scientists who first crossed swords with coronavirus in the 2003 outbreak of SARS, and then again with MERS in 2012. Instantly the researchers mobilized against a new adversary. We always knew that this was going to come back, said Messicar, head of biochemistry at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. It's what history has shown us. In Lübeck, Germany, Rolf, and the names here aren't important to remember. It's just fun flavor. Very international. (laughs) Uh In Lübeck, Germany, Rolf Hilgenfeld stopped packing boxes for his retirement and started preparing buffers for crystallography. In Minnesota, Feng Li stayed up all night analyzing the new genome and drafting a manuscript. In Shanghai, China, Haito Yang rallied a dozen graduate students to clear their schedules. In Texas, Jason McKellen instructed laboratory members to start assembling gene sequences from the viral genome. 
Within 24 hours, a network of structural biologists around the world had redirected their labs toward a single goal, solving the protein structures of a deadly, rapidly spreading new contagion. To do so, they would need to sift through the 29,811 RNA bases in the virus's genome, seeking out the instructions for each of its estimated 25 to 29 proteins. With those instructions in hand, the scientists could recreate the proteins in the lab, visualize them, and then hopefully identify drug compounds to block them or develop vaccines to incite the immune system against them. Here we go, thought Messicar. I'd better get some sleep. And then it keeps going. The, the article is fantastic because it goes through the first few months of the scientific effort and how they, and it count and it, and it keeps a clock of how many cases there are as it goes and the, and the, and the work on the structures of the proteins. I had no idea. I mean, first of all, it's still amazing to me that um, how quickly we can sequence nucleic acids. That's right. I yeah. find that astonishing. Um, and then I didn't know the same information that you just read was also in that New Yorker article I mentioned. I didn't realize that just by looking at the base pairs, you crazy scientist people can now determine like what a protein looks like just from reading the base pairs. Like, well, I don't know how of. that works. That's really so, impressive. <laughs> sort of, sort of, sort of. We still had to um, crystallize the proteins and solve their structures. I mean, that's what I do um, for a living. I'm a protein crystallographer. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go ahead and stop for a second and do some high school biology. I want to refresh everybody's um, everybody's memory as to as to what these things are that we're talking about, right? Let's and um, and I apologize if this is <laughs> if this is too basic, but I really want to talk about how awesome mRNA vaccines are, and so to do that, we kind of just need a quick refresher, okay? So, what are the components of the cell? Well, you have a membrane, right? That's one of them. You have a nucleus that has its own membrane. Mm -hmm. um, oh, have... so I'm not talking about the organization within the cell. Oh, okay. I'm We're just talking, talking about, about mitochondria, the powerhouse. Well, you're talking about something else. I'm talking about what are the basic building blocks of a cell? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say carbon. And uh, that's more basic and, than I meant. Oh, dang it. I'm bad at this. Um, proteins. So How about proteins, proteins yep. and uh, yep. we have those nucleic acids we were just talking about. Yep. Membranes is um, the third. I suppose there's there's water, of course. We have water and some then, sugars. Yes. And so I'm going to call it everything else. Okay? Oh, everything else. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> so you have, you have membranes and membranes are the walls of the cells. Yes. Okay. And it divides up the cells into compartments, like you said, like the nucleus and so forth. All right. And then the proteins, they're the, they're the machines and proteins are amazing. Okay. Yeah. They are, there's so many different shapes and structures and they're built up like Legos. So if you think about a Lego set, you know, how many different Lego pieces are in a Lego set? Maybe you could do a lot with 20 Lego, different kinds of Legos, right? Sure. A two by four, a two by two, a one by two, right? Everybody has their own names for Legos that they came up with as a kid. But <laughs> given like 20 different shaped Legos, you can do a lot. Sure. And that's what proteins are. They're the machines. They're engines, they're cranks, levers, um, enzymes that catalyze really difficult reactions. And um, if you think about the pictures of the coronavirus, the red, the red and white ball with the green spikes on it, mm -hmm. right? 
that's all the outer shell of it. And that's all made up of different proteins that have come together, interlocked and formed this cohesive unit. Um, some proteins even like walk, like walk along like superhighways in the cell. It's, they're really cool. Okay, then comes the nucleic acids that you mentioned, DNA and RNA, right? DNA is the blueprints, all right? They yes. are the, they code for the proteins, all right? DNA is transcribed into RNA. RNA is translated into protein. All right. And so those key words help you understand what's going on. The RNA is a copy of the DNA mm -hmm. and it's sent from the nucleus outside to the rest of the cell where it's translated into protein. And so that's how that works. And so, um, so that's just the, that's just the start. That's where we're going to start with that basic mm -hmm. high school biology. Yeah. So um, with that in hand, we can talk a bit about the immune system, right? Um, do, you, do you know, like, uh, maybe just give a quick summary of how the immune system works. I'm really grilling this uh, your uh, English this English teacher here on uh, high school biology. No, that's okay. Like I tell my students that English class is every class and every class is English class. And oh, that's great. We, we do a lot of basic science, actually. Some math, some statistics, all kinds of literacy are fair game in my class. Excellent. Okay. So the immune system, how's it work? Okay. Well, um, something appears that shouldn't appear. Yeah. And um, there are lots of tools available. You got your T cells, you got your white blood cells. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be simple, but essentially um, something shows up and the body starts throwing a lot of stuff at that to see what works. And when it finds something that works, it quickly destroys the thing if it can. Um, of course, there are other stuff happening too. your body, you know, cooks itself in order to kill <laughs> bugs. And, um, <laughs> it's a multi-pronged attack. Yeah. And um, sometimes, and this is something that COVID seems to be good at triggering. It can cause like the immune system can end up killing you because it rages out of control as it's trying to destroy the invader or that's right. And so um, the principal response is to make antibodies, right? So the antibodies are made to the antigens. And so the protein, the, the proteins that coat the coronavirus, those spike proteins and all the other parts of the proteins, those can be considered the antigens, right? Mm -hmm. And the antibodies are going to be made by the immune system to match them. So it's like this. If the antigen is a key, the antibody is a lock. Only in this case, we have one key and the body has already made a million different locks before the virus even arrives. Mm -hmm. And it tests them all on the key to find the right one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they find the one that fits the best and doesn't fit quite good. And so they randomize the lock a little bit and then they keep going until they have exactly, they've found exactly the match, right? And then, they then the immune system memorizes that forever or, or however well, long. hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and so it's better they, remembering some things than other things, it seems. Yeah. And then um, from now on, if it ever sees that antigen again, it can attack it immediately. Mm -hmm. So that's the, how the immune system works. Okay. So all of this was really kind of discovered in the, you know, early part of the the 20th century, right? They all kind of started work in the mid part of the 20th century. All of this immune system stuff started to get worked out. All right. 
Now I'm going to jump all the way to 2020. And I'm going to tell you that the Moderna vaccine was ready to test less than a month after the virus genome was published online. All right. And yeah. an army of volunteers, hundreds of thousands of people received the trial as a placebo and, you know, a blind trial, right? So they did the, right. the controlled trials. Some got placebo, some didn't, and they were ready to start testing it. So how did we get from a rudimentary understanding of the immune, of the immune system to less than a month and having a vaccine ready to go? Um, what, how did that possibly happen? And so there's, our, there's three sources that we're going to use. All right. Okay. The first source is an absolutely excellent video and it's called why it actually took 50 years to make COVID MRNA vaccines. All right. And it's on the Sideshow yeah. channel and it's um, hosted by a guy named Hank Green and it's excellent. You could go there and you can, it's a 12 minute video and you'll just learn a ton about why, how come it was so fast and yet took forever. Is that Hank Green, the vlog brother, Hank Green? I think so. He's one of these internet tile style yeah, like personality okay. fellows. Yeah, one of the first ones. He's a pioneer. Excellent. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> All right. The second source, it's an article published in UAB News, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's the article is COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. How could anything develop this quickly be safe? Written by Nam Moon. Um, yeah. Nam. Well, I'll admit, and I am, I am not by my nature anti-vax at all, yeah. but I was caught a little off guard by how quickly it happened. I, I felt some suspicion also. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is no, like this is never, nothing like this has happened. There's no precedent for it. And yeah. I was a little skeptical at first for exactly this reason. Well, you and many people. Right. right? And the third article actually was published the 14th of September of September 2021 that's two days ago as of recording and mm -hmm. it's called the tangle the tangled history of mRNA vaccines in nature by Ellie Doglins Dolgan so those are the three sources for the science that we're going to cover and I recommend you look at them in fact Eric I'm going to share my screen for you really okay quick. let's do it and I just want to show you this picture from the nature article right there and do you oh, see what do you can you describe what you see? I would love to. So I see what I think are base pairs in the background. Yes. Um, and then oh, it's a uh, so it's you guys should understand. I'm not looking at like an important graph or something. I'm looking at an illustration. Uh, but the background is base pairs, vaguely matrixy with you know in the mm -hmm. in a computer font, but it's blue instead of green. And in the foreground is a sequence of rectangular shapes, which I realized a moment later were a hypodermic needle that's right and inside the what do we call it, the chamber like what do you call the sure okay inside the chamber there is a circle which is made up of little ovaloid shapes connected to each other in a squiggly line in the middle which i'm going to guess is the mrna the squiggly is line is represents. the mrna that's right and uh, the I don't circle know what, is, yeah, what the is the li circle lipos it's called the liposome is that supposed to protect it long it enough? It is. To... It is, and it's absolutely critical. We're going to talk. We're going, we're going to talk about that in a minute. What I wanted to show you this picture is because this RNA sequence is the COVID nineteen vaccine. Oh. Okay. Right. That's, right. That's it. That's the entire thing. That's the COVID nineteen 
vaccine that you see right there. I mean, Which, how many lines of, of, of code is that? It's like maybe 40, mm-hmm. 40 um, A, A, B, Cs, and um, in this case, the Greek letter mm-hmm. Psi, which is standing in for use. Why? Why? That's going to be very important later. Okay, then I'll, yeah. I'll wait. Mm-hmm. I, I, can I just jump in, though, and say that like a piece of RNA, that is such an improvement over taking pus from someone and scratching it and rubbing it into your body. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> so much safer. It's such a huge improvement. And I'm very enthused about this improvement. All right. So it took decades, right? So the first um, thing that we want to talk about is um, in the 70s. Early experiments in the 1970s discovered that if you take mRNA, M, the M here stands for messenger, right? So the DNA is transcribed into messenger RNA, mRNA. Wait, can, um, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I think I know the answer, but I'd rather get your answer on record rather than my guess. Yeah. Uh, why is it? Because as you described RNA to us earlier, its yeah. entire purpose is to be messenger. So why this? Why designate it from other RNA with the M? There's two other kinds of RNA called tRNA and um, mitochondrial RNA. And both of those are used in different ways. RNA is different than DNA in by taking, so a DNA is ATCG. That's what the letters are in DNA. Mm-hmm. You take the, all the T's and change them to U's. Now you've got RNA, right? And so that RNA to then how you use it gives you the little letter in front of it. So mRNA is for messengers. tRNA is used in ribosomes. rRNA is also used in ribosomes. So there's a bunch of different ways to use RNA. Mm-hmm. And so mRNA, message RNA, this is the RNA that is a gene that's been transcribed, meaning copied from your DNA and is going to be translated into a protein by a ribosome. Okay, so early experiments tested adding mRNA transcripts to cells. They took rabbit mRNA and they added it to frog cells and they got back rabbit proteins. Mm. So in other words- So the frog cells were creating yeah. rabbit proteins because the rabbit R- mRNA was stuck in the frog. That's right, exactly right. So they realized that this could be very useful as a tool. In that case, they were only interested in using it as um, to study like genes and how they interact and things like that. It wasn't mm-hmm. until later that someone realized that it could be used as a drug, okay? So in late 1987, a guy by the name of Robert Malone performed a landmark experiment. Here I'm reading from the Nature article. He mixed strands of messenger RNA with droplets of fat to create kind of a molecular stew. And then human cells bathed in this genetic gumbo, absorbed the mRNA, and began producing proteins from it. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like the worst YouTube cooking show ever. (laughs) Realizing this discovery might have far reaching potential in medicine. Malone, who was a graduate student at the time, right. Wrote in his, wrote in his journal in 1988, it might be possible to treat RNA as a drug. And so this was the first time anybody had ever used fatty droplets to ease MRNA's passage into a living organism. So what, so what someone realized is that they could get, they could make a cell, a human cell, change its behavior by giving it mRNA to do something different. 
right? And once you can do that as a toolkit, you can do so many different and interesting things. But they found lots and lots of problems. And they had to solve all of these problems by 2020. And that's for, for us to be able to have the mRNA vaccine as we have it. Okay. So let yeah. me tell you, tell you what some of the, the problems were. Okay. Oh, so why the, why the fatty droplets? Let's talk about fat first. Cause that's kind of weird, right? So the mRNA, if you just imagine you had like a handful of mRNA, <laughs> first of all, how, what would it feel like? What would its color be? <laughs> I don't know. I don't actually know the answer. That would it'd probably be so be, much. It'd probably be so white. <laughs> um, and so then you ate it. All right. What would happen? If you just ate it, yeah, it would it would break down immediately. Yeah, so that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if it, and instead, what if you just in? Okay, so that's not going to work. So let's just inject it directly into the bloodstream. What same happens problem. then? The same problem. It just gets degraded. Your cells they absolutely hate just free floating mRNA because it thinks that it thinks that it's a it's a problem. It thinks it's like from a cancer cell or from some other kind of uh, problem. Right. And it That's, immediately attacks it and degrades it. Yeah. The immune system actually is recruited to um, degrade it. Right. I suppose it all gets recycled too. all those useful pieces. In fact, this was this is such it's so common that one of the most ubiquitous proteins is called RNAase and it breaks down mRNA. That's what it does. So um, I actually used to work on RNA. Um, I worked for, when I first moved to, um, to the Bay area, I worked for, um, a scientist named Jennifer Doudna, who you may have heard of before. <laughs> is that, is she the, um, at Cal? Uh, she is at Cal. That's right. Yeah, She's the, um, she's the CRISPR lady. She's the CRISPR lady. Now, when yeah. I worked there, I didn't work on CRISPR at all. Um, I worked there for a couple of years and then moved on to other projects at Berkeley Labs. I would do that's so, I do why stuff you don't have different. a Nobel Prize. And she, well, <laughs> there's many other reasons, <laughs> but she does. Okay. But I think yeah. the important, and so Jennifer Doudna is awesome. She's one of my heroes. If you want to just learn about someone interesting, go learn about Jennifer Doudna. Um, but um, important bit is that it was an RNA lab. And so what I had to actually work with RNA and before I could even, t even work with it, I would have to spray down my working area with this thing called RNAase zap <laughs> <laughs> because it was everywhere. The RNA that I would be working with would just degrade if I wasn't incredibly careful. Mm -hmm. It's all over your fingers. It's all over the walls. RNAase has coded our lives and because cells dislike it so much. So it's unstable. When scientists started trying to use it as a potential vaccine, the a lot of funders laughed at them and said, there's no way. It degrades too quickly. You're never going to get it to survive inside a cell. So that was the first problem that they had to solve. And here's how they solved it. Okay. And if someone's going to get a Nobel Prize for um, uh, the our mRNA vaccine system. It's going to be these two people who I'm going to talk about next. They're at the, they're at the top of the list. All right. So these, they are Caitlin Carico and Drew Weissman. They partnered 
in the 90s to start working on mRNA delivery systems. And they worked on it for quite some time to try to figure out why it was unstable, why the RNA was unstable. And what they found was that when your cells make RNA transcripts, they change the U's in the RNA to pseudo U's. <laughs> That's what that psi symbol, the trident, uh, the Greek trident was. Yeah. It's a small little modification to change uracil to pseudo uracil. And the cell now won't, won't attack it. It thinks it's its own RNA and not foreign. Oh, these results in, were published in 2005 and it was like a, and it was a bombshell, right? I mean, from what I understand, it was a big deal because now they could do things with RNA that you couldn't before. Interesting. It seems to me, I don't know how um, the taxonomy of intercell molecules works but it seems like if it's a different molecule it should have it's no longer rna it's like it's something different from rna it's a good question so um rna is comprised of four letters just like dna is right so dna atcg rna aucg right which is why it's not dna <laughs> that's right um this is pseudouridine dear reader i'm showing a chemical structure Right. And then That's this not hovering here is uridine. Mm -hmm. And you can hardly tell the difference between them. I don't. Oh, oh, I see it. Yes, it is um, very subtle. It is very subtle. A nitrogen atom has been flipped. Yeah. I missed it on my first pass. Yeah. And so um, when you make your RNA using this, it still acts as RNA and it's fine. The cell can use it, no problem. But the immune system doesn't target it. Interesting. Or rather, target or rather is attracted to it enough that it can start to learn to incorporate the RNA and start to make the antigens. So uh, get on a time scale, let's say you made the Moderna vaccine using uridine instead of pseudouridine. Um, how, what would be the time difference in how long it takes the cell to realize it doesn't belong there and destroy it? Oh, I mean, it doesn't from what I, okay. So you, that's a good question. It kind of leaves what I've studied, right? I don't know how long um, the, what the degradation time is for unmodified RNA versus modified, right? What I do know is that it's even debated. Sometimes some scientists think that you don't have to do this and instead you just have to change how you purify the RNA you just have to make the RNA better and then it's not a problem anymore, but other people insist that it's required. It's actually still oh. up for debate. So we don't know yet. We don't quite know yet, but evidence, the preponderance of the evidence is that using pseudouridine allows it to be, um, to be targeted mm -hmm. correctly. Okay. So that was one problem that had to be solved, but it's not, the, it's not the only one. All right. Okay. They also figured out that they could modify the cap which is like the head of an RNA transcript. Think of an RNA transcript as like um, one half of a zipper. That's kind of what it looks like. So they just change the head and the tail of it. And that also makes it more uh, recognizable by the cell, keeps it from being degraded, right? Sure. Um, and that's fine. But now they needed a way to get the RNA into the cell walls. And now this, this is where we come back to the fatty droplets. Okay. Mm. So think about a soap bubble. 
right? A soap bubble forms spontaneously from soap and water, mm-hmm. right? What it's made of is a membrane. Well, right. a cell is a membrane as well. It's actually the same thing. How do you make soap back in the day, right? You rendered fat to produce the soap. Soap is fat in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's not quite right, but that's kind of what kind of white kind of what Close it is. Enough. But it forms For bubbles. Purposes. Yeah. The important, the important bit is that it's a bubble, and cells are bubbles. And so you can, if you wrap the mRNA in these bubbles, it um, will now the cell can glom onto it and bring it in. But it's even more than that. It has to be the right composition of the bubbles. What they discovered was if they use these particular um, these particular fats that have a strong positive charge that would counter the negative charge of the mRNA. And that would allow the, and that would allow the everything to kind of equilibrate better. And then, but also the, when you inject them and you hit the blood that kind of falls apart and it becomes less toxic or not toxic. So anyway, but so, so you can read more about this in the article, but the point is, there are these innovations that they had to do to do this. And each one of these innovations came by diff- from different scientists. They're all um, very, <laughs> if the entire group of people really are um, eligible for, for these Nobel prizes when they come out, in my opinion. <laughs> and um, the effort is, um, it's kind of comparable to a moonshot when the scientists in 2020 started running, right? But also you have to think about all the work that came ahead of time to do it. Decades of research to get this all together. Can I, can I, sorry, this is a little backwards, but can I ask a couple lipid related questions? Yeah. Um, one, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it, would it be accurate to say that this, this issue of how, um, as you were describing, like the soap membrane and so forth, like soap, literally, this is why it kills bacteria and viruses, right? Because it's destroying the lipids on their surfaces. Is that, is that correct? Essentially? I don't want to say yes or no. (laughs) Um, I think that there are, it's more like there are some detergents that can break up their cells that are essentially kind of tear them up. And here's my second question. This is more related. Um, Viruses also are surrounded by lipids, right? Some of them are not all of them. um, Coronaviruses are though, aren't they? They might be. Anyway, okay, maybe maybe you don't have the answer to this one either, but I was going to ask if this is part of the virus's strategy also is to use the lipids to um, coronaviruses inside. Coronaviruses and enveloped virus. You're right. It has a lipid layer on it. Who's the scientist now, Aaron? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> we're all scientists when we look at when we do the research. Um, so that's pretty much what I wanted to say about mRNA vaccines. Oh, of course, the last bit is the actual payload of the vaccine, which is the mRNA sequence, which is what we were just looking at there. So that codes for a section of the spike protein, um, which is one of those little spikes on the, on the COVID particle surface. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so what happens is the cells absorb the fatty um, phospholipid thing and uh, the liposome and the mRNA goes into the cell and transcribes the the spike proteins and then excretes them. And then that is promotes the immune response and we're, and then you're good to go. Yeah. 
So, okay. So the point is that, isn't it amazing that all the research finished at just the right time? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an incredible set of coincidences. It would be really bad screenwriting. It, it, it's a total Dave's ex machina. Um, and it feels like cheating that we got this so fast, but that's what miracles are. I suppose. I'm so grateful for them. Um, I've been able to see friends that I haven't been able to see who are all vaccinated. I've been able to um, be less afraid. <laughs> it's just awesome. And then, imp- and this is one, of, this is the part that I'm actually, I'm actually kind of the most excited about. Um, people are taking the MRNA vaccine approach and they're t- using it to like create like other kinds of vaccines, like flu vaccines, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm but also um, like cancer treatments as well. And so you can do the same thing. If, if there is a cancer cell that makes a kind of protein, kind of a deformed protein that normal cells don't make, then mm-hmm. you can create a vaccine against it. And then your immune system will be targeted right to the cancer and, and uh, take care of it for you. And that's just amazing. I mean, the, and then there's, um, there's ideas that people have about doing like genetic treating genetic disorders. And, and it's just, uh, just fantastic. I'm so excited by it. Um, there are some things that are going to change the world. And this is, this is one of them, this kind of technology, this kind of medical technology, this is really what, when we talk about, um, how God wants us to change, (laughs) get, (laughs) learn, make new medicines is one of them. And this is very exciting. Yeah. That's, um, in the last, in Come Follow Me, I guess it was really more last month. There, we were going through a lot of sections about learning from the best books and learning um, the nations and the sciences and everything we can about this world of ours. And it's pretty exciting that there's still things to learn, still ways to improve things. Okay. If we got anything wrong, you guys can please uh, let us know. We'll correct it. <laughs> yeah i'm excited for season four next time we're not doing anything science related and it's going to be fantastic yeah <laughs> that does and, sound fantastic and <laughs> uh <laughs> no i right. like I, I like the science um <laughs> hey aaron yeah so as as you may have heard uh what with us being a proud member of the dialogue podcast network but there are some new uh people joining the network, um, including uh, my friend Madison, his podcast, Bristlecone Firesides, which is about the intersection of um, being a Latter-day Saint and ecological and environmental questions. And uh, Blair Hodges is doing the Fireside, which um, exciting new interview show. So there's there's a lot of exciting things happen happening right now, in addition to our fancy new theme song. Thanks to... <laughs> Oh, right here. Thanks to Daniel Foster Smith. Um, yeah. We're very excited to be kind of uh, leveling up the, uh, the show. <laughs> so uh, thanks to him. Um, if you want to find us, you can find me at Aaron Brewster on Twitter. And Eric is T-H-M-A-Z-I-N-G. Also, you can find the show um, at Face and Hat on Twitter. And you can find it at faceandhat.com. We have a Discord server now for the show. Um, I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes. You can jump in and chat with us there. Um, do you check, I mean, do you use discord for any other purpose? Um, I do the association for Mormon letters has a discord. Um, and I joined a discord run by Mormon 
artist Laseros. All right. Yeah, you can find me better um, than Facebook there. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it. Bye, Eric. Bye. Bye.